0: Dear friends, please go ahead and open up the Word of God to Luke chapter 8. We're walking through verses 40 through 56. And within this passage, we will see an interruption. and It will be a reminder of the ways in which sin has interrupted our lives here on this earth. And we see even in this passage, sin interrupting the ministry of Jesus Christ as the effects of sin have Affected this young woman, and as they have affected a young girl and the the daughter of one of the leaders of a synagogue in this area, so let's look at this passage we're in Luke eight, and verses forty and through fifty-six. Luke writes: Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. We see within this passage, as we see within our lives and the lives of our loved ones, the interruption of sin's consequences. The ways in which the the consequences, the effects of sin, have been disrupted in the lives of those who are made in the image of God. And this is something that was communicated through the ceremonial law. The purpose of the ceremonial law was not that you would walk through these particular religious actions and then by doing these religious actions, you would thereby have your sins forgiven before a righteous and a holy God, but rather the purpose of the ceremonial law was to emphasize and point to the reality of sin, to communicate this great redemption story. This reality that sin has affected you, has affected us in all ways, has affected us in incredible, incredible ways. And we see that in the many ways in which there are rules and there are restrictions on how it is that people are to interact one with another. There are rules and restrictions on how it is that people are to behave at certain times in their lives. And this is communicating the idea of the effects of sin and you see within the atonements that are there, the, the sacrificial system that is there within the ceremonial law, the necessity of a sacrifice, the a necessity for the consequences of sin, the sins that you uh, participate in and willingly act in, and the sin and the effect of sin even upon you as a person. But even within that ceremonial law, we see the insufficiency even of those sacrifices. As we've seen so many times before that as these offerings were brought forward to that altar and they were placed upon the altar because of a sin or because of the consequences of sin or the effects of sin in that person, the altar, was the the fire was still burning. It's not as though it went out. It's not as though you gave a sacrifice and then that was it. It was done for. And even in the sacrificial system, it was pointing to the insufficiency that was there. Even in these sacrifices that were given, they were declaring and crying insufficient, pointing to the one who would be sufficient. And we see not only in the sacrificial system the effects of sin, the way it has affected people, we also see the solution, the necessity that one would come forward, that there was brought forward day in and day out lambs, unblemished lambs that were sacrificed there upon the altar, and they were pointing to the Lamb of God that would come forward and take upon himself the fullness of sin, the fullness of the consequences of sin. But there's no question about it. Sin has affected all of our lives, and it is something that has interrupted the lives of all of us in one way or another. And we see here within this passage the effects of sin interrupting the ministry of Jesus. We see that here just in the first few verses, starting in verse 40. It says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling down at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. This was a very important man in this community. This was a ruler of the synagogue. In a, in a smaller synagogue, there would be three rulers or, or three elders, and there would generally be one who was a more prominent one, or in then a larger synagogue, there would be seven. And these are people who had, were highly esteemed within the area, highly esteemed within the culture. And for this man to come before Jesus and, and get down upon his knees and, and beg him to come to his house was something of great significance. Don't look past this. This man is humbling himself at this point. He is, he is seeing his situation as being hopeless. He is seeing his daughter as being in dire straits, and he is coming to Jesus, believing that Jesus is the one who can help in this situation. And Jesus is coming from the other side of the lake after being commanded, after being asked to leave. After, remember, in the last passage we walked through, he had just freed a man of a legion of demons. He had sent that legion of demons into a herd of pigs, 2,000 of them, and they ran off a cliff, and they all died. Sad passage, if you remember, just last week we talked about this. And the people there asked him to leave. They, they were terrified. They saw the power of Jesus. They saw the power of God. They saw him free this man from his slavery to this legion of demons. But instead of being joyful, instead of throwing a party, instead of being happy that we, he was there, instead of asking him to teach, them, teach, teach to them, they asked him to leave. They asked him to go away. They loved, they coveted these pigs that that they were not to have at this time. They coveted their idol more than they did God. That's the sad state of idolatry. And this is the people on one side of the lake. They're asking him to leave. Please leave, terrified of him. He gets to the other side, and these people are pressing upon him. This interruption comes at this point. And so we're going to see the interruption of sin at two points within this passage. And the first is the interruption of sin's consequences in life, the ways in which sin interrupts the life that we have here on earth, and the interruption, secondly, of sin in death, the consequences of sin as life is disrupted in death. And that's a reality, as you know, 100 out of 100 people die. It's a consequence that all people everywhere will face so long as Jesus tarries. Let's look at this first point, the interruption of sin's consequences in life. We're going to look at this in verses 42 through 48. And it says this, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. We see here upon this woman the effects of sin within life, consequences of sin that are in existence, that, that have come about on account of the fall. It wasn't on account of something in particular that, that she had done that led her to have this particular condition. This is a malady that she had that was a consequence of the effects of sin as a whole. And our bodies are damaged. Our bodies are affected here in this life as we live. And they're affected because we are living in a fallen world and they affected this woman and they they likely were affecting uh, this woman from the time that Jairus's daughter was born it's an it's an interesting correlation that is here just about the time that Jairus's daughter was born this woman began to have this condition that she was experiencing at this time and she came down in a state of hemorrhaging she was she was releasing blood in a regular way and it's something that had affected her And this isn't just something that was a difficulty for her. It wasn't just a malady that she had. It wasn't something that was just making her tired and lethargic as she went through her life. It was something that within the culture of the Jewish people in the first century, according to the ceremonial law, made her ceremonially unclean. It made her ceremonially unclean the entirety of the time while this was happening. And this is a woman who had lost her health, she had lost her wealth, she had lost her standing in this community because of the effects of sin upon her, because of the effects of sin, and not because of a sin she had actually committed, not because of a sin she had actually done, whereby she had this some people didn't understand this, right? They, they were not rightly understanding the effects of the fall upon people. And they would see someone that had a particular malady. They would see someone that had a, a sickness. They had a disease. They had financial difficulty or, or something, that was, something that was missing. They, they had limbs that were missing or ears that weren't working in some way. And they would say, well, this man must have sinned in this way because we can look at the Proverbs and see that the righteous will prosper so we can thereby go backwards in that reasoning and say, well, this person's not prospering therefore this person must have been unrighteous this person must have sinned in some way perhaps if he had not sinned his parents had sinned but it's not to rightly understand the consequences of the fall when adam and eve ate of the fruit there were great consequences and it affected all of the people that came after them and that is the consequence here in the life of this woman she was affected in all aspects of her existence. And the ceremonial law is displaying that reality. It's not displaying her at this time as someone who in particular had sinned in a particular way that other people hadn't, but it's communicating the effects of sin upon all people everywhere. The same is true with the lepers. As they, you see the lepers being interacted with in the Old Testament and in the law and how they were to keep themselves outside of the camp and they were to keep themselves away, they were to g- declare themselves to be unclean so you're missing the point if in the first century you were looking at it and saying, well, thank you, God, that I'm not like this person, that I've been righteous, that I've been holy. No, the right idea to have, the proper picture to have, would be that is a picture of me in my sin. I am outside of the camp. I am cast off. I am unclean. I am separated from God. And this is a picture that was displayed Each and every day, in many other ways even, within the ceremonial law, as the people were interacting one with another, she would have been an outcast in her community. She would have been put out in many ways. She would not have been participating in the normal activities in the community. She was not allowed even to go to the temple to participate in worship as she had previously in her life because of the condition that she had totally outcast. Um, totally separated, even from her husband. Sad reality there. This is a consequence even here that there was a separation between her, her and her husband that are there because of this. You can see these restrictions as you read through Leviticus chapter 15, and it walks through how it is someone is to behave, how it is they have to interact with one person and another person because of the consequences of this discharge of blood that they have this is the disease that bankrupted her. She she lost her possessions. She, she lost her wealth. Luke says it this way in 8 and 40, 43, she had spent all her living on physicians. She could not be healed by anyone. Another writer says it this way, she had suffered greatly at the hands of many physicians. That's a I, someone who is not a physician saying that this person had gone and spent their money, had probably given them all kinds of remedies, had probably gone to the you know the sophisticated doctors all the way down to the witch doctors, just trying to see can anyone help me and They took her money and they were unable to help her. She suffered greatly at their hands, and she had spent all that she had seeking to cure her ailment, seeking to cure this disease that had so disrupted her life, that had so disrupted her relationships, that had so disrupted her finances. And the connection that we need to have here, the connection that we need to see here under our understanding of the ceremonial law and how people were separated on account of it is the connection to sin. Not necessarily of that individual person, but seeing it in a general way. You you must see this reality, dear friend. You, You must understand this reality. We are born into this world affected by sin. Sin has interrupted, sin has disrupted the way life should be. The way our interactions should be one with another. The way your life should be as you walk through it. Sin has disrupted it. Sin has damaged these things. Sin, most especially, has damaged your relationship with God. Sin has led us to be born separate from God, distinct from God. We've always been distinct from God as one who is created, but distinct in, in as far as not as being unrighteous. Adam and Eve were made righteous. Don't don't miss this idea. People will say. Such foolish things and ignorance. They will say, how could a God make a world this way? A world with all of this cancer. A world with all of this suffering. A world with all of this, this, this damage that occurs within it. But that's not what he did. The Lord made the world. The Lord brought all things into existence that came into existence. The Lord made man and woman. And he said it was very good. He did not make the cancer amongst them at that time, this is a consequence of a fall. This is the effect of the fall, and this is communicating the effects of sin, that the relationship between man and God has been damaged. The relationship between man and God has been affected. Isaiah 59 in verse 2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. That's the reality of our existence in coming into this world, our relationship with God has been affected. Our relationship with God has been damaged. And there's no amount of money that you can pay to heal that relationship. There's no amount of religious actions that you can go through to heal that relationship. Relationship. Please see that this woman went from one doctor to another seeking to heal this problem that she had, seeking to heal this this damage that was done to her on account of sin. They were all hopeless. There was nothing that could be done. Please see that connection. The same is true, dear friends. With you and I, in regard to our sin, there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves in our current situation through our actions There's no amount of religious deeds. There's no amount of money that you can pay. There's no amount of of suffering that you can put yourself through. These are facades of righteousness. And the world is full of religions. The world is full of religions that are man-centered. The world is full of religions that will tell you, if you do these particular actions, you will heal your relationship with God. If you walk through these particular actions, you will be made in a right standing with God. If you walk through these particular actions, there will be healing in your relationship with God. But That's not how it works. This is a picture of the consequences of sin, the effects of sin. Nothing she did could help herself. And many times, people at the situation in the conversation say, "So what am I going to do?" That's exactly where you need to be. Just as this woman was so desperate, she saw no other hope. She didn't say, "If only I made a little more money, I could go and pay this physician." If only I did these certain actions. They were some incredible. Um, there were some incredible prescriptions that were given at this time, that were just completely absurd. And the same is true if you seek in any way to heal your relationship with God apart from the finished work of Christ Jesus. It is hopeless. Sin had disrupted her relationships with others. There's nothing she could do through her own actions to heal that. It was Christ. It was Jesus alone that needed to bring this healing. Jesus alone was the means and the hope. That is there, and dear friends, that's the hope as well for damaged relationships within your life. It is it is through Christ Jesus, it's through being gospel centered and seeing what Christ has done and how it is that has affected us. Sin has cost us everything in the fall. The wages of sin is death. But she found no hope in herself. She found no hope in seeking these doctors. She found no hope in seeking these experts. She found no hope in going after the recommendations of that day. It was hopeless. It had been 12 years. So she reached out through this crowd and she touched the fringe of his garment. We see that in verse 44 of Luke chapter 8. So she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now, to understand these fringes on the garment, they would wear blue tassels on the fringes of their garments. If you remember, Jesus talks about the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and we see it in verse 5 through 7. And they would, would, would um, overextend these tassels, they would really make their tassels long and, and broad and wide. You were just supposed to put tassels on. But they would really, really emphasize them so that it could be seen that we are really, really holy people. Cause see, we have really, really large tassels on the bases of our garments. But that's what she's doing here. She is just barely the edge of her garment. But the word that's communicated here is she is she is clinging. She may have for dear life just reached out and barely gotten a hold of that tassel, but she is, she is clinging to it. That's the Greek word that's being communicated. There is a, a clinging there to this tassel, though she barely grasps a hold of it. And Jesus says this in verse 45. It's an incredible statement. He says, who was it that touched me? It says, all denied it. And then Peter, don't you love Peter? Don't you you love how Peter is always big and and bold? I mean, could some of you relate to Peter and just just the things that you may say at times? He says, Master, the crowd surrounds you and they are pressing in on you. What do you mean? How can you say, who touched me? Someone touched me? There's people all around you. They are pressing in on you and you're going to say, who touched me? Who is it that touched me? There's people everywhere. They're pressing in upon you. They're crowded all around you. And Jesus says something else that I find fascinating in verse 46. He says, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. I find that to be an interesting thing for Jesus to say. And all I can say on that, all I can comment on that is that it seems that there was a cost to Jesus in some way. There was an effect upon Jesus in some way in his humanity in the doing of these miracles. I don't want to you know, get into guessing too much on that, but he is saying something went out from him. We see even in his humanity so many times that he was, he was exhausted, he was tired, that he was even seeking just to get off by himself. He was fully God. Absolutely, And that's why he can do these miraculous deeds. But he was also fully man. He was fully human. And Jesus was aware someone touched him. Now, I don't think that he had no idea at all who who touched him. But I believe the purpose here in drawing attention to this woman, because remember, what's happening now is Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, all right, the leader of the synagogue. He's going there for the purpose of, of healing his daughter because she's sick at this point she's going to be dead by the time that he gets there but at this point she she is sick or at least that's that's the understanding here within the, this narrative but in the middle of this he's interrupted by this woman who touches him and he's going to bring attention to this and I believe we even see him bringing attention to this woman's healing right in front of the leader of the synagogue, one of the leaders here, which is Jairus. She is healed right in front of him because it was important that her healing be well known because this was an issue that she had. and She was under a a uh, ceremonial ceremonial uncleanliness and it needed to be communicated to everyone that she was clean. Gildenhus makes this point. He says, If her cure had taken place without the Savior making it known publicly... She would have had the utmost difficulty in removing from the inhabitants of the town the prejudice and scorn that she had met with for so many years. He continues, he says this, For this reason, the Savior, who knew her in all her need and sorrows and understood her circumstances, makes her appear before the whole multitude to testify publicly that she has been healed. She touched him and she was healed. The power of Jesus healed her, the power of God healed this woman. It didn't matter what she had done on her own. It was hopeless. It was only in trusting in Christ. It was only in going to Jesus where she could be healed of the effects of sin upon her. There's another point that's easy to look past if we're not careful. You must understand this as you read through Leviticus 15 and it talks about one who is ceremonially unclean who has a discharge of blood and the ways in which they affect those who are around them and the ways in which they even affect inanimate objects. She is one who would make inanimate objects unclean. It talks about saddles or or beds or even furniture that someone sits on when they have this discharge in this way. They all become unclean. Anyone that interacts with her becomes unclean. She was basically a dead person walking around ceremonially. That's her reality. What, what a picture. What a picture of sin. What, what a picture of us in our, our natural state. in, in almost as, as a zombie state spiritually. Moving around. Existing, but in a true state of deadness. Jesus should have been unclean ceremonially because she touched him. Don't miss that. It was totally inappropriate for her to behave this way in any other circumstance. With any other person, it would have been a sinful and wrong behavior for her to reach out and to touch them at this point. But to Christ, the one who had given her life, Christ, the one who had clothed himself in flesh to dwell amongst the people. Christ, the one who had come about to, to make all things new. Christ, the one who had come about to make clean that which was unclean, to give life where there was but death. It's not the case here. Christ did not become unclean, Christ remained as he was. She was cleaned, she was made whole. She was made ceremonially clean. She was put in a good standing back in her community in one fell swoop, in one act of faith, in merely grabbing upon the fringe of his garment. She was made whole again within this community. All at once, the effects were changed of this particular condition, that is. She could now go to the temple. She could now be with her husband as as she would have normally. She can now be around her family and friends. She can now go into other people's houses as she normally would. She didn't have to live as an outcast and separate from other people. Jesus isn't unclean at this point. And we see even he's going to go on after this. And he's not going to go off to the temple. And he's not going to go off and bathe and wash. No, he's going to go on to the next thing he needs to do. And he's going to raise this girl from the dead, this young woman from the dead. Is this not a picture of what Christ has done for us? What would it be if Christ took upon himself the consequences of sin and he existed then in a sinful state? May it not be. No, it cannot be. Christ was fully God and fully man. Christ is omnipotent. Christ is eternal. Christ defeated sin and death. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that picture? Christ took upon himself the consequences of sin Our sin was imputed to Christ Jesus, and his righteousness was imputed to us. There is this beautiful book that is written by R.C. Sproul called The Priest with Dirty Clothes. If you haven't read that book, I would encourage you to read it. If you have children, I would encourage you to read that book to your children. It is a fantastic book. And, parents, there's even notes in the back to help you go through some of the doctrine that is within that book, and even the passages of scripture you can look at to help support. That doctrine, but this idea of imputed sin and imputed righteousness is there within that book. And this idea is communicated through this story of this priest that was going forward to go and visit the king. And as he was traveling to go and to visit the king, he fell off his horse and his clothes got dirty. They were filthy. And were he to go into the chambers of that king in filthy garments, the wrath of the king would fall upon him. It would be an offense to the king were he to go in there with his dirty clothes. And so he did what anyone would do in that situation to go and to get some soap and some water and to begin to clean the garments. And as he cleaned and cleaned and cleaned, he made it even worse. Because even his hands were filthy. Is that not a picture of us? We seek to clean our own sin. We seek to make ourselves right before God. Even our actions in seeking to clean up the mess that we have makes it even worse. As Isaiah says, all your righteous acts are like filthy rags. Like filthy rags. This is what I'm, I'm atoning, using to atone for myself. These filthy rags, Lord, please accept them. No, that is an offense. Oh, in the story of the priest with dirty clothes, it was necessary that he get new clothes. And the son of the king came and he gave this priest his clothes and he took upon himself the clothes of that priest. And the priest was able to go forward and visit the king wearing the clothes of the son of the priest. Of course he's going to be accepted into the chambers for he is clothed as the son of the king when the son of the king put upon himself the clothes of this priest, these dirty clothes, they became clean again. It's a picture that we have here. Christ was not tainted by her sin, by her ceremonial uncleanliness. He could not be. And the same, even more so, was true with our sin as it was placed upon Christ. He defeated sin and death through his life and his death and his resurrection. And there's another doctrine I want to deal with here that we cannot just just pass over. And we're going to spend more. We're spending more time on this first point than the second point. In case any of you are keeping track of of the minutes, I'm not going to spend as much time on the second point as I do on this first point. But we must not just just so quickly run past this, for we have this beautiful doctrine of adoption. This picture of adoption that that once again is so connected to our life in Christ Jesus, so connected to the joy and life that we have by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ and what Christ has granted to us what has been given to us all of us born into this world were born in an alliance with the devil we were in opposition to God we were at enmity with God we were not born children of God we were not born in the family of God we had to be adopted and look at these words that we see here in verse forty seven and forty-eight of Luke chapter eight. It says, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him declared, in the presence of all the people, why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Don't read past that. This is a very intimate term that he is using with this woman that reached out in faith and grabbed upon the fringes of his garment. He calls her daughter. This woman very easily could have been the same age as Jesus, could have been older than Jesus was at this time. He calls her daughter because she has been accepted into the family of God. She is one who had faith in Jesus, not only to be saved of this ailment, to be saved of this discharge of blood that she had that had made her ceremonially unclean. She had faith in Jesus Christ to be saved of her sins. She was trusting upon him as the promised one that would come forward, the one that was promised so early in scripture, the child of the woman that would come forward and would crush the head of the devil. She was trusting in him for that purpose. She was believing upon him for that purpose she has been adopted. Adopted into the family of God, a a child of God here at this time because of her faith in Jesus Christ. Adoption is a beautiful picture that we have even in this life. Sadly, there are those that have discourage the idea of adoption we talked about some last week that believed in this idea of of generational curses and whereby someone did something in the past and it would affect people generationally because of that and I don't deny that there can be effects of things that people do in the past we're all affected by the sin of adam and eve we're all affected by things that people do before us but this idea that we need to superstitiously be afraid to adopt because we're going to bring some generational curse into our family is absolutely absurd and is anti-christian it is contrary to to the teaching of the scriptures and i would even make this emphasis where would we be apart from the adoption into the family of god none of us are born into the family of god we do not baptize babies in this church because they are not a part of the new covenant. You were born into the old covenant. Certainly you were born into that covenant as a covenant of works and do these things and you will inherit these particular blessings. Don't do these things. You will have particular curses. We're not born into the new covenant. You must be born again, as Jesus says in John 3 to Nicodemus. The only way someone gets into the family of God is through adoption If you are a part of the family of God, you have been brought in by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. And you were adopted into the family of God. John says this, John 1. We see this in numerous places in John's writings. But John 1, in verses 11 through 13, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is the beautiful picture of adoption. And that is a picture that is shown when a family is adopting another child. They are adopting this child, not to treat this child differently, but to bring this child into the family that they may experience the blessings that all of the other children within that family are experiencing. That is the idea. That is is the picture. And, oh, that is so true in the family of God. That is so true in what Christ has given to us, the love that has been shown to us, in Jesus Christ, not because of what we deserve, not because of our our natural generation, not because of a pedigree that we have. No, the pedigree that we have, the natural generation that we were born into, leaves us in a place like this woman was, separated from God, in a place of, of uncleanliness. No, we needed Christ to act upon us, to affect us, to change us, to bring us into right standing 1 John 3 and verses 1 through 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that they did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is in everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Once again, that picture of the cleanliness that is given to those who are in Christ Jesus, not because of themselves, but because of he, him granting it to them and he makes them clean. He forgives their sins and he adopts them into the family as one of his own. And that's why Jesus is able to say to this woman, go in peace. She can go in peace here, not merely on account of her healing, but most especially on account of the relationship she has with Jesus. He called her daughter, one who has been granted peace with God, one who is in a right standing with the Lord. Romans 5 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, dear friends, ponder this. Don't let these be words that that you just hear week in and week out and, and think not too much of it. Oh, it's kind of the same story all over again. Do you have peace with God? Are you confident that were you to die today and you stood before the Lord, He would He would accept you as one of His children? Have your sins been forgiven? Or are you hopeful? Are you just hopeful that it will work out? Are you? I'm, I'm hopeful that God will be merciful upon me. I'm just hopeful that, that I've done sufficient good deeds. I'm just, I'm just hopeful that God's going to be having a good day when I stand before him. You now, dear friends, if anything, this story tells us in this, this picture of the interruption of the consequences of sin in life, we see it in this woman's life. We see the fullness of the consequences of sin that there's no hope through our own efforts. There's, there's no hope through our own goodness or our own religious practices. It is through Christ alone, through Christ alone, that you can have peace with God. Secondly, we see the interruption of sin's consequences in death. It affects the lives that we live and sin affects us in that we die. Verses 49 through 56 of Luke 8, it says, While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, said, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter him, with him except Peter and John and James. And the father and the mother of the child and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to, eat, to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. One of the sad consequences of sin is the existence of death. That's not how God originally brought humanity into existence. The Lord says this to Adam there in Genesis 2 15 through 70. He says, The Lord took man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. He gave him a job to do to protect this area. And to work it and to to cultivate it. The same words, as we've emphasized before, are the same two Hebrew words that are used in regard to the priest as they worked in the tabernacle. They were to work and to keep. And many times it's also translated to, to guard. To work and to guard. They were to, to work this area and they were to protect it. And this was what he was given. He was commissioned to do this. Verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that's where it began, and we have this reminder at each and every funeral that we participate in. There is the existence at that time, at that point, of what should not be, of what was not a part of God's creation as he made it It is it is it is the it is the lack of what should be is that not what sin is it's the opposite of what should be and death being the very opposite of life is the opposite of what should be and this young woman dies at this point modern funerals are, are very different from first century jewish funerals they are they are different in many ways if you think of a modern funeral, you, you, it's very orderly. You will hear people weep. You will hear sadness, but there's, there is there's much order, and perhaps it's our, our Western, Northern European influence that has affected us in how we do things. But this is not how it is in first century funerals. You need to put your ideas of funerals in this country and in this context, out the door. That's not how they worked in the first century. First century funerals in the Jewish context were very disorderly. They were very loud. There would be people ripping their clothes open. There was even rules. They had traditions for everything. And one of the things they had traditions of is how it is that you rip your clothes at a funeral. And so uh, the parents would rip their clothes in a certain way, and then, you know, next of kin would rip their clothes in a certain way, and then, then friends in, of the family would rip their clothes in, in certain ways to express the sadness that they have. And then they would even keep wearing these clothes. They would, they would sew them together just kind of loosely and wear them for the next several weeks as they mourn the loss of this person. So not only would you have this this wailing, you would have people ripping their clothes, this you know kind of chaotic, uh, you know situation. You'd also have these flutes, these very high pitched flutes playing these disoriented songs. So that's what Jesus is walking into at this time when they walk into the house. This funeral is already taking place. It's already happening here. Even before he gets home, the funeral has already happened. The mourners are there. Friends of family are there. Family is there. And they're all participating in the mourning as they normally would in this first century. We see that verse 52 and 53 of Luke 8. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Can you imagine being someone laughing at Jesus. It's not the first time that this has happened, but he is commanding them wailing not to weep. And and that's what's happening here. They, in, as we talked about previously, it was very common at Jewish funerals to hire professional mourners. So there's people that, that was that was their job. It wasn't Probably their primary job, but it was it was a side job that they did and When someone died, they would show up and they would generally be women that were doing this job and they would they would wail professionally and the, there would just be noise that was just going outward and they 'd be crying for this person and the fact that they had been lost. It's an incredible job, I think, to, to have to be a professional mourner, but that was something that was, that was expected. Were you not to have a professional mourner at the funeral, it would be offensive. And the more important this person was, the more professional mourners they would have. So most likely there's many at this funeral at this time, because this is someone who is respected in the community. This is an important person in the community. So there's likely many that are showing up at this time. And burials are something that happened very soon in the first century. The Jews did not embalm the body. They did not um, go through, you know, many of the things that we do nowadays. When someone died, they were buried shortly after the time. When they died, they were buried quickly. So the funeral would begin almost immediately from the time when the person died. It, It would even go on for days, as you see with Lazarus. It's been four days right? The tomb is closed up when Jesus shows up. Lazarus has been dead four days. There's still people there. There's still mourning. There's still a form of a funeral that is happening at this time. But in the middle of this, so all this chaos is going on. These flutes are playing. People are ripping their clothes. People are crying out. Professional mourners are are doing what they do. In the middle of all this, he tells them to stop. He tells them to, to stop. He says no more and they they laugh at him they laugh at them they, he says do not weep for she is not dead but she is sleeping what's going on here and is she just is she just mostly dead is this like uh, princess bride all right he's 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 dead he can't talk no no he's is he just mostly dead or is he all the way dead She was actually dead. He uses the word sleeping here because he's trying to communicate an idea. He's trying to communicate the idea that this is not the end. He wants them not to see that when someone dies, that's not the end all and be all. There is something after death, and most especially there's something after death in connection to Jesus. If Jesus acts upon you, there's very much something after death. There's life. After death, Geldenhoos makes this point. He says, On arriving at Jairus' house, the Savior commanded those who were bewailing her not to weep because she was only asleep, meaning thereby not that she was humanly speaking not dead, but that her death was not permanent and that she would again be awakened from it through his miraculous power. He is communicating what God does in the life of a sinner and bringing them back to life. He's communicating this idea of what we have to look forward to in the resurrected state of those who are in Christ Jesus. Please believe that. This life is not the end all and be all. For those that are in Christ, this isn't the end all and be all. She was dead. And in case you don't believe me, we see him use the same wording in regard to Lazarus. And we all know that Lazarus was very very dead. That's emphasized by the people that are there when he shows up at the tomb. John 11, 11 through 16, It says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, then he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. And just as a reminder, there, Thomas believes that they're actually going to die because just in the previous passage there were people trying to stone him, stone Jesus at that time. So he figures this is it, this is the end. We're going to go here, Lazarus died and we're going to die as well. His point here with Lazarus and with the little and with the young woman is that they had both died, but this is not permanent. This is not the end all and The be all, and that's what we must remember ourselves as well. Jesus is our hope in this life. Jesus is our hope in living a life that is fruitful and that is a blessing to others. Jesus is our hope in having a right relationship in this God and in in having a right relationship with God in this life and rightly worshiping Him. You cannot worship God rightly apart from Jesus Christ. You must go. Through that narrow gate, it's through Christ alone that you can even begin to begin to worship God. But likewise, in death, it is not the end if you are in Christ Jesus. As Jesus says so famously to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There is life there in Christ Jesus. The the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin was death. But in Christ Jesus, there is life and, and true life. And this is even a passage that is not translated properly because it became so famous when it was translated in the King James Version that we don't even use the word so in the way in which it was used at that time period in the 17th century. But the word here is best translated in this way for God loved the world in this way. You see that translated that way in the Holman Christian standard. The problem is when you have these Bible verses that we're so familiar with, we just expect them to go certain ways. But this is how God loved the world. He he showed his love to us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son, that whoever believes on him should have life. And it affects us. And it will change you. Christ giving you life will be your hope in life and death. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and 14 and 15, he says, For the love of Christ controls us. But we have concluded this, that once one has died for all, Therefore, all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If Christ has given you life, if Christ is your hope in life and death, if Christ is the one that you are are clinging to as the woman clung to, to the fringe of the garment of Christ Jesus as her only hope in this life. If, if Christ is your only hope in death, as Jairus went to Jesus and, and, and pleaded to save his child, and he said, no, come with me. He gave her life. He brought her to life. You will be a changed person. You will be distinct. You, you will be different. You will be changed in this life in times of difficulty, and in times of blessing, in times of abundance, and in times of of want. For it does seem that Jairus is one who who believed in Christ, who trusted in Christ, but I I tell you, there are those that came to Christ, that desired something from him, desired a healing, desired a blessing. Which of us think of God? Which of us are, are, are mindful of the eternal in times of trouble? Which of us Turn our, our hearts to the Lord during times of, of struggle, of difficulty, at, at times when 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 we are out of a job, or at times when we have a loved one that is that is hurt or is not doing well. And in times of blessing, we begin to forget our, our religion changes during those times. There's a great many religious leaders that were declaring, crying for Jesus to be placed upon the cross. Think even upon the lepers. In Luke 17, all the lepers that were healed, but one that was saved. They received the blessings from God, but only one came back, only one who who saw who Jesus was, rightly believed upon Christ Jesus. These miracles weren't done, so they'd be magic lessons, so that people could just see, oh, look at what he does. I guess I'll believe in him because of what he's done. Natural man will come up with all kinds of reasons not to believe what is plain and clear before him. God must change him. God must affect him. My closing question for you here on this topic of the interruption of the consequences of sin and death is do you have peace with God in death? Are you one who can say I have peace with God? Not not. Might you be fearful of death? Sure, you might be fearful of the way in which you may die. None of us want to die in pain. None of us want to die in difficult situations. You may be thinking about how other people will be affected after your death. Those are all legitimate concerns. The question to you, though, is do you have peace with God? Are you one who has been made right with God? Are you one who can declare, as Paul said earlier, In Romans 5 and verse 1, that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Are you one who has seen your sin and gone to Christ? Seen the effects of sin upon yourself? Gone to Christ and clung to Christ? Have you been a changed person? Oh, dear friends, come to Christ. Christ alone. Christ alone is the solution for the consequences of sin in this life. Consequences of sin and death. Christ alone is the means that God has given whereby you can have peace with God. Come to Christ alone. Cling to him. Cling to that cross as this woman clung to the fringe of his garment. And you will be saved. You will have life. Life abundantly. And life everlasting.